When you're an individual contributor, you need some relationships to be successful. But when you're a leader, you need all relationships. You know, you need relationships of peers in your company. You need relationships with vendors. You need to build good relationships with people in your organization. And for me, a lot of that's based on trust and transparency. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I sit down with Den Jones, CSO at Banyan Security and a podcast host himself. Den left his steady job as a postman in Scotland and ventured into IT to fund his passion for music. Now he's a security leader with a no BS outlook and a reputation for getting things done. We cover how he got there, vetting vendors wisely, keeping an eye on user behavior, and ultimately creating relationships that are worth leveraging. The cybersecurity industry is saturated with trite buzzwords, chatty salespeople, and overpromising vendors. So how should a leader cut through the noise to make smart investments? Can a vendor transcend the status of supplier and actually become part of your team? And shouldn't we all be asking, was that you who just logged in? Okay, Den, for the uninitiated, if you would, please introduce yourself. Hey, Steve. Yeah, and thanks for having me on the show. So I'm Dan Jones, Chief Security Officer at Banyan Security and formerly of Adobe and Cisco, where I ran enterprise security at both companies. Now, we had a chat, I don't remember when it was now, it was recently, where you kind of explained how you came up, including what you just mentioned, but well before you were at any of those organizations, what did you do? How'd you get your start? Yeah, so as you can tell with the accent, Steve, my origin is a bit Scottish, born there very long ago, I guess. And I was a postman walking the streets of Scotland. So as you can imagine, Scotland's a bit of a rainy, cold, damp, miserable environment when you're walking the streets at four in the morning or seven in the morning. So it wasn't a very fun career choice. And I'm a huge music fan. So and I love to write music. So I was at my buddy's house one day and he had lots of music gear. And I asked him how he could afford all this amazing stuff. And he started to tell me the story about how he was at Sun Microsystems and how he was doing IT work. And I instantly said, well, how do I do that? So I, I need to do that, right? So um, I just want music gear. So I instantly left the post office, went to college and started a career in computers, graduated and then went off to first job in a manufacturing company as an IT technician back in the mid 90s or early 90s. So all stemmed from my desire to buy music gear. Yeah, so take us back there. So you're a postman, you're probably very fit, right? You're walking around, you're lugging around lots of lots of the post. You go into your friend's house. What is the one thing that you're like, I have to have? So he, you said he had lots of gear, but what's the, you know, you're writing songs in your head as you walk around and you deliver the mail. What was the thing you're like, I have to have that? It was enough for you to quit your job and go to university. What was the thing, though, that you're like, I want that one thing more than anything else? So in Scotland, there was a TV show called Top of the Pops and all the famous bands, you know, I idolized people like Depeche Mode and Pet Shop Boys and New Order and 
David Barry and all these guys, and they were using either Roland synthesizers or Yamaha synthesizers. And my buddy had a, what was the equivalent of a DX7, but it was a TX81Z. And it was like eight DX7s in one rack. And I'm like, I need that. <laughs> I want to get close to that. And then he had some other gear effects units. And actually, funnily enough, one of the effects units he had, a Roland effects unit, this RSP 550 that I've got, he had two of those. And I got one of them when I was in Scotland. When I moved to the US, I don't know what happened to it. I probably had sold it by that point. But when I moved here, I eventually bought another one of those just a couple of years ago now. And, you know, he's still at me to try and buy it back. <laughs> he wants it. He obviously sold his a long time ago as well, but he loves this unit. So he's like, you know, when I go to Scotland next, he's like, if you're not using it, bring it over. So I don't think I'm going to part with it for love or money. It's a great bit of gear. And, you know, most musicians, you know, especially electronic dance music stuff, most of these people are doing it within their confines of a laptop with plugins and plugins and plugins. So to have some real physical old gear just adds a different dimension to, you know, whatever I'm producing. So I don't want to give that stuff up again, you know. I always love a good origin story. I haven't a clue what you just talked. Like, I don't know any of those acronyms. I mean, it's probably how a lot of people feel when they listen to folks talk about security protocols and acronyms and such. But I, I have an, no clue. But what I love is the idea. You know, I can remember being much younger and going somewhere. And when you don't have any money, you want everything. Like you go to the mall and you see, gosh, I wish I could have that or I wish I could have this. And so I love the fact that you had a steady job, right? And you immediately you're like, okay, I know I want this. This I have a route into IT or a way that I believe I can get there. It wasn't natively a love for IT, but it was seen as a vehicle to sort of fulfill the hobbies that you had or the passions you had around music, which I, I just love the beginning of that. Yeah. And it's funny, my dad, obviously older than me, he was really pissed when I gave up that post office job. You know, his whole view was you had a job for life, <laughs> you know, because back in those days, especially in Scotland, people were like, you know, you've got a steady job. Why would you give that up? It's a really good career. People work in the post office forever. It's like the gas or the plumber or the electrician, you know. But for me, it was like, you know, hey, dad, think of it 20 years from now, people aren't going to be sending mail. <laughs> They're going to be doing email. And my dad's like, what's email? <laughs> so yeah, back in the late 80s, early 90s, this whole idea of email was totally alien to everybody. As alien as my bit of music gear model number is to you, right? Without question. No, I have friends and, and I know listeners will know exactly what you're referencing, but I am completely ignorant. But I love the fact that you're like, hey, I, I want, I, I need this. Now, how long were you at university? So I actually, I never got as far as university. I went to college. In colleges in Scotland, it's funny because I'm only learning this now. My daughter's 17 and she's about to head off to college and she's looking at all this stuff. And it bemuses me because in the US, when you go to college, you spend a lot of time on other traditional general stuff like math or English or a language or whatever. When we went to college in the UK... Like I done a year which was called an NC, then I done an HNC. So that's like the first two years of a degree. And all you're doing is IT. There's no math or English. They're expecting that shit's all been done at high school, right? You go there and it's just like IT, IT, IT. I was learning COBOL programming within the first kind of quarter of me being at college. 
And there was no other subjects that were, there was no subject that was not related to computers. It was just all computers all the way. So I, I went to this little local college called West Lothian College. And I had a blast. I mean, I was there for a couple of years. And then I went to another one in Edinburgh called Stevenson College, which is kind of as you were going to get to year three of a degree. But I ended up dropping out because I was paying all this myself. And I came from a really, you know, like an average, an average family with not much income. So I was paying all this myself. And in the end, it was like, well, I better get a job because I can't afford to do this. And also, it was all going software engineering. And I really like the tech side of it. I like that hardware. I want to get involved with the technology. So I left and got a job. And what was interesting was out of 30 people that were in my college class, the HNC class, which was a year two, there were 30 people or so in that class. I was the only one that got a job in IT. So I later hired one of my classmates and as a technician on the first company I worked for and gave him a start in IT. He was at the time working in a factory in a warehouse. And I just remembered this guy was sharp as a tack and really, really clever. And I'm like, I want to surround myself with smart people, right? So I brought him over, this guy Colin Gallagher and shit. He's still to this day doing IT stuff and making a great living. And then I continued to hire people from that college, which was pretty cool. Where's Colin today? Is he in the States or is he still back home? Yeah, he's still in Scotland. It's funny, I was texting him just yesterday. And I'm going to go back in Scotland for a couple of weeks in July and stuff. So we're going to catch up. We always catch up when I go there. I would love to bring him out to the States, actually, but I don't think his wife and family or extended family <laughs> would probably be too pleased. Well, you've given him a, it sounds like a well-earned shout out on the show. Uh, that's why I was asking. So you can, you can let him know that his name was referenced on a very famous podcast. The most famous podcast. Right? <laughs> More famous than mine. <laughs> right. right. Actually, I'm learning something here. Do you actually have one or is that just Scottish humor? Yeah. One of the things when I joined Banyan was a lot of my role is evangelism, right? So think of it like the advisory CISO kind of role. And we decided we'd start a podcast and try and get my humor out there, I guess, to raise the profile of the, the company and stuff. You know, Banyan's a very small company. So yeah, we got this podcast called Get It Started, Get It Done. And it's really reference to my brand and reputation in the Valley of someone who I've built up over the years, this reputation for just getting shit done. I mean, for me, I take pleasure on delivering, you know, results. And I think we're in a results driven industry. So I like the fact that I have that reputation and we played on that. So it's a meager following. I think, you know, my mother one of the co-founders' mothers probably listens to it. And whichever guest we bring on, maybe they listen to it or their mom, I don't know. So the name again for our, and we'll, we'll put a link in this, but Get It Started, Get It Done. And that's the official Banyan podcast. And you, and you are the host? I'm the host. Yeah, yeah. That's why I've, I, I like to use my expensive microphone. Yeah, so this is, well, I've got lots of questions here. So first off, my own ignorance not knowing you had a show, but I love the fact that you do. I find that it is, I didn't plan on having a podcast. It was sort of an accidental thing and it took a route that I only wanted to do it if it was a security leadership podcast, kind of pursuant to learning about the guest and their career and their life and their struggles and their journey, including you know their origin story and all the rest. And so we, we've done that 
But it's amazing now. I think everybody has, it's become commonplace. When we did this four years ago, it was actually kind of rare within the IT security space. And so I'm, I'm glad to see there's more options. And I think that it, it's nice to see that it's become sort of a staple of learning based on the feedback that I get. People really enjoy it. What's the theme while we're on it? I mean, so if they listen to your podcast, it's people will leave your show with what? Yeah, it's, it's funny. So what I try and do is bring guests on and have them share stories about things that they've got started and completed and the lessons learned along that journey. So, you know, one of our early guests was one of my friends who started on MSSP and they do IT for small companies. And, you know, we, we went along that journey of like, well, what made you start your own company? Like what made you believe and what is done look like from her perspective of that company and stuff. And the cool thing for me was, you know, I personally knew Sarah in, in this case. And, you know, I know her family. She worked with me in Adobe. And her story was really pretty cool because it talks about, like, how do you take a risk when you're, you know, again, you know, she was in Adobe, me as a postman. The difference was, though, is she had two kids. She had a husband. And, you know, her and her husband, she was the higher wage earner in the family. so. For her to suddenly just jump into, I'll start my own business. I mean, that, that's a bit of a risk and one that I've never had the guts to take myself, right? So I was just inspired, you know, along the years of, of knowing her and stuff. And so to have people like that on the podcast, I think is, is pretty cool because there's a lot people can learn from the story of how they start something, how they go along the journey and then how do you finish it? And, and we try and keep to that theme. I had recently one of my friends from the FBI on the show as well, Elvis Chan. He's like their San Francisco field agent. He runs that division there. So obviously that that point we're deviating slightly. You know, we're talking about the current Russia-Ukraine situation and what, what does that mean from a cyber perspective and a whole bunch of other things. And so there's times I'll deviate, but pretty much I'm trying to stick to this consistent theme of starting something and finishing something because i think the one thing i'm trying to learn because i've only done about four of these i think so far and what i'm really trying to do steve is what you mentioned to me at the start which is you know you try and keep a consistent expectation for your listeners of they know why they're going to listen in they know what they're going to get they know the structure the format you're four years in i'm four shows in so i'm, I'm way behind you in the, the sense of understanding how to be a good host and what a good podcast is all about, right? I've been told this many times. It's a, it, that is also a journey. So I don't know what done looks like for me being the podcast host of the future. <laughs> Hosting, yeah, it's a little bit different or a lot different, meaning in, and I think this holds true probably for you as well. A lot of what I do is research something, show up, say smart things. And as my position has evolved, it's more of rather than say smart things, it's maybe say one controversial thing and then ask a lot of questions. And the show, even though I, I speak on the show, of course, it's more about asking, trying to ask the good question, sometimes even interrupting the guest to ask a question specific to something that was just said, maybe in the middle of a sentence or a paragraph and pushing into that and, and making it natural and not rehearsed. There's too many things in this industry that are over-processed and lack candor. 
and you listen to them and they just they they just sound like shit. They sound fake. And it's funny, one of the things I asked, I've said this before, but my first question when somebody asked me if I wanted to do a show is, can I swear? Not the fact that I wanted to swear necessarily, but it's a sign of how much latitude I'd have in recording. So if I wanted to swear, I could, and I can, because I just did. So I love the fact you've got a show. We will share it through our channels because I I love the format of the show. I, I think that's something, I mean, it applies to so many things in life. And I think it's, you know, my whole take for this is who is the person who is the leader? Let's tell their story. But I love that this is similar in a way that, that we're going to talk about a journey of a, of a thing that was created or a business or a project. And so you get to understand the why. Why are we doing this? And then how? And I think that's a great model. I love that. I'm, and I'm sorry I didn't know that earlier, but full transparency here. It's, I'll tell you, you could Google it and research it. And I've had someone come and stand right with me as they try and find this show. And they struggle. <laughs> it's so new. And I, and I know that, you know, we got it on Spotify and we've got it on our website and SoundCloud. I think we're working still to get it on iTunes. You know, so I think with everything, you know, in the natural journeys, the listeners of my show, they're going to have to do a little bit of research. So the only takeaway I've got from that is, well, maybe that means I'm going to raise the bar on how smart they need to be in order to be a listener because they're going to have to hunt for ages to find it. Yeah, you've got to really be dedicated to listen to Den's show. I think we'll call it the Hidden Podcast. Right, right. I wanted to have a show once called the Hidden CISO, meaning who are the people who make sure the work's really done, you know, while the CISO's out playing around. And I won't go too far down that rabbit hole, but those that know me know what I'm talking about. But yeah, the Hidden Show. I asked you earlier when we had a chat, speaking of, we mentioned vendors and stuff earlier. Um, This is your first vendor job, and you said one of the issues that you see, this is my first vendor job, a platform company, and proud to be here, but you said there's an issue with vendors, and you used some pretty descriptive words. What's the problem with vendors in our industry that you see? Yeah, I think, first of all, the marketing hype around the industry, I think everyone jumps on that, and they kind of deviate from their core of what they're trying to deliver because because they know like as an example right if zero trust is the biggest buzzword of the day which right now is is hugely front and center um everybody's like well i'm a zero trust company too and it's like no no no, no. you are an identity management company uh zero trust least privilege bs just stick true to what you are so i think there's a couple of things one is this marketing hype and stuff and then in the security space, you know, there's obviously a trillion vendors out there and a lot of VC funded vendors that just do this one little widget. And I think there's a big problem with the fact that companies end up having to buy more products than they have staff to run products. I remember in Adobe, you know, we had, if we had 50 people in the team, we had about 70 products that we had to support. And, you know, that equation just doesn't work. But for me, you know, vendors, I've always had a disdain for salespeople because I just hate being abused and harassed and stuff like that. So I'm not a big fan of salespeople. 
And then ultimately, you know, most vendors I meet, you know, they're just glomming on to whatever the cool theme of the week is. And I think it's bullshit sometimes. I'd rather they focus on, hey, what's the problem they're going to solve? And they don't need to harass me. You know, if I'm a smart buyer, and I think I think maybe the, the other question is, is, are there enough smart buyers out there? Or are there just lots of idiots that don't know what they're doing in industry? And I think if you're a smart buyer, you don't need a salesperson, a vendor company to hound you to sell you something and it's funny because i was a customer of exabeam when i was at cisco i didn't once need to speak to the salesperson other than hey can you broker the deal like i want to talk to engineers and i want my engineers to talk to your engineers and i want them to deliver some magic and none of that magic gets delivered via the sales guy some of the salespeople at exabeam are my friends too so i don't want to be shit to them but the reality is is Build relationships, you know, don't sell me stuff, just build relationships so that when I've got that problem that needs solved, then I know who I'm calling. You know, I should be calling you if your product's good. And I'll tell you, so one of the things that <laughs> that I always kind of put out as a measure for any product, any sales team is, do they pass the beer test? Meaning, do, would I want to spend my free time and my own money to go have a beer? with this sales team or the salesperson is and their engineer. And if they pass that, then that's sort of my first rule. And the next is I'll deviate a little bit from what you said. I have found that if I have a good, so this is in line with what you said, and then I'm going to deviate from it. If I have a good relationship with the sales team and stay in touch, they help sometimes better than the technical routes in Problem resolution, meaning if I have an issue um, and I need escalation, or on the flip side, if things are going really well and we can celebrate success together, that involves the sales team and their brand. And if you have a good relationship and if things are going well, you have good purpose of direction, you have a hell of an advocate because they're also people who make money for the company. So people listen to them internally. So you can get good situation. You know, Dad always said good deals get better and bad deals get worse. And I found some of my best situations were when I had good relationships with the sales team, even though I didn't interact with them that much. And so that's probably my deviation from that point. I totally agree. I mean, my identity company that I used, Adobe and Cisco, and I've been pretty impressed with what they've done for many years and stuff. And their sales folks, they would hunt down people internally for me. And I, and I think that just goes back to the relationship building. You know, you know you're building a relationship with these companies. And I don't think of it like a supplier. I think of it like a partner, you know, because if you do this right as a leader or whatever, right? But if you do this right, your team is not just the people that are full-time employees in your organization. Your team are these third-party vendors and getting to know them and getting to understand their constraints and their troubles and things that hold them back or things that help them. I think is really, really important in our business. And I think too many, I've, I've seen too many leaders just shit all over their vendors and really it doesn't help. In my early days, I fell foul of that power trip really. But as I grew up and became, I'd say a more mature leader, I realized that that relationship is vital and really important and stuff. And, you know, for me, I was privileged in Adobe and Cisco to, hold good positions and be respected and stuff. But that doesn't mean you should abuse it. You know, you should really 
think about how you wield that power? Well, and it's something I see often in living on both sides. You have to both in a positive way and sometimes a negative way treat the if you're going to go in in a relationship with a company and buy their software and make them truly make them part of your team and your program that should be the expectations set early on and i don't know that enough customers do that i don't know that enough vendors do that where it's an extension of your team back to what i said earlier if there's something we're celebrating call that out ask your sales team what's the first thing we're going to celebrate when we deploy this what is the first thing we're going to write up and get credit for maybe just internally Maybe it's the what should be the milestone that we celebrate first so I can prove that the money we spent was well spent internally because they are acting, that CISO is really acting like inside sales for you, truthfully. Now, also for brand building, look, you have to, I had a kind of a friend and mentor used to talk about hunting in packs. And at the same time, if a vendor's done right by you, you should do right by them. Do a testimonial do a panel conversation with them, go to their SKO. If they're helpful to you, ask, how can you help them? And they may be blown away at the fact that you ask that. But in all that goodness, there's still a lot of, you know, in this industry, and there's many, many companies, there's still a lot of BS out there. There's still a lot of buzzword bingo. There's still a lot of unscrupulous people that need kind of knocked back. But I start with my beer test. If I, if I don't want to have beers with them, Maybe that's a really bad barometer, but that's how I begin. Yeah, being Scottish, I could subscribe to the beer test. A cultural acknowledgement there, I guess. But it's true. I mean, look, I've declined a lot of invites to events and stuff like that over the years because I don't want to hang out with these people or or maybe maybe the state of the project's not going well. You know, so any of those let's socialize and hang out and be merry and all that beeswax i'm like nah not not yet and i I do like to acknowledge and celebrate success with the team and, and you know that includes you know the partners that you're working with and stuff so yeah but we don't have that many evenings and hours in the day and stuff to go celebrate or to go hang out with people so you got to pick that stuff wisely and then in the end over the years you know it's funny because it's a very small industry, really. So over the years, you cross paths with people over and over again. And, you know, relationships and stuff is, especially as a leader, when you're an individual contributor, you need some relationships to be successful. But when you're a leader, you need all relationships. You know, you need relationships of peers in your company. You need relationships with vendors. You need to build good relationships with people in your organization. And for me, a lot of that's based on trust and transparency. So. I drive a high level and a high expectation. I want my results and I want them quick. I have a very low tolerance or low threshold for attention to detail. So I need to surround myself with people who are detail oriented. And, you know, as you kind of go through that, especially with all these vendors and stuff, you need to find the ones who are honorable and that do deliver and weed out scrupulous people that you're trying to spend your life avoiding, right? I reflect on something you said in our last conversation, and I think it's important. There's a lot of things. I've got pages of notes. I have to pick carefully just due to time. But you airdropping into a topic that we got into about security intelligence, you built a team known as security intelligence, and and you said it was meant to be more of a proactive security. I want to jump into that. Because I think there's a lot of goodness to share with the listener. So tell me first, what was the mission 
if you're building a security intelligence team, why did you create it and then what is it? So we were deploying our Zero Trust program in Adobe in 2018. And one of the things we were talking about is this idea of risk score or trust score of the user and the device. And it was really a binary thing to begin with, which is, do you have something or do you not, right? So there's no machine learning or UEBA or any of that business. But at the beginning, it started off as, well, we want to know more about the user and the device. And I had a team that had been hired by a different leader to go do some other stuff. And then they were reordered to my team. And I'm sitting there with, you know, a, a really talented manager and a really talented bunch of engineers, right? And I'm like, what can I send them down the path to do? And I really just figured, well, wait a minute, I need this problem solved. And the problem was, or in, in my mind, the problem was that we need to take advantage of all the data that we've got. Because most companies, their SIM and stuff is gathering lots of data. And the only time you start doing something with all that data you have is when shit hits the fan and you're under attack. And then you're like, right, let's all look, let's find out, let's trace back, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, how about we start using that data? And what I wanted to do was in the identity industry, the authentication industry, one of the challenges that people hadn't solved, which the banking industry solved years ago, which is, was that transaction yours? You know, was did you spend that money? Was that you or was that someone else? Why did you spend $50 in Egypt when you're in the US? I mean, geez, right? But we in our industry hadn't solved that. So I wanted to solve this thing, which was a really simple question. Was that you who logged in? And start looking at anomalous events. So we grabbed these little four college grads. They got some open source stuff and they started to look at this information and they're like, they were doing machine learning and they were starting to build up the use of open source code or whatever. And they were building this thing and we built a security intelligence platform. And what we could do was we had a whole process around anomalous events for user authentication. Was that you that logged in or not? And it worked really well. And we could determine when someone's first factor was compromised. Now, we had all of our apps behind Okta, right? So we had 2,000 applications that were enforcing MFA. So if your first factor was compromised, you know, we just wanted to make sure we changed the password, right? But we were also using certificates for authentication as part of our Zero Trust platform. So the first factor wasn't so critical. And what we were doing was we then got to position where we no longer required users to change their passwords every 90 days. We, so we went back to the auditors and we we're like, well, first of all, we're using certificates instead of username and password. We're doing this machine learning. So if the account's compromised, we're going to change the password upon compromise indicator. And that whole workflow was reach out to user. Was that you? Yes, no. If the answer is no, then you go change your password and you get to move on. And so for that purpose, that enabled us to reduce our service desk tickets because password change tickets are in the top 10 of most service desks. And if you're getting 40,000 people to not change their passwords every 90 days, first of all, that reduces a lot of friction and makes them happy. And then secondly, we're going to save some real money at the service desk. So when I got to Cisco, the cool thing was, was my data security team were already in talks with Exabeam 
and we brought Exabeam in and Ido twisted their team's name from data security to security intelligence. And we actually hired some great people and we deployed the, the Exabeam platform and, and we done the exact same workflow again. And think of it this time, 100,000 people not changing passwords every 90 days. Like that is tangible savings right there. So for us, not to mention that they're not as pissed off at us, I guess. And yeah, so for, for me, that was just such a great win because security intelligence is all about being proactive, use the data you have to try and solve problems and get security in the background. So that was one example. We were working on other examples where you can use this information in a smarter way. So a couple of things. The first is sell me this idea. You and I both understand why this is important. I think most of the listeners do, but their leadership might not. So not vendor specific. And those that listen, know we don't even talk about our own platform on this show, even though we just got a very nice plug from Ben there. We intentionally don't bring it up, but I want you to finish kind of the idea. You said the question initially, was that you that logged in? Which kind of sounds like the beginning of a children's book that centers around security information, right? Explaining it to the executive, why is that important to be able to answer that specific question? Yeah, well, our industry spent our lifetime on this idea that we know that it's you and you, you know people talk about trust but verify they talk about least privilege and all that nonsense the reality is though is a bad actor looks like an insider and an insider can be a bad actor and the reason i tend to not care which is which is because when you're logged into your computer everybody looks and feels like you at that point with one exception their behavior your behavior will change depending whether you are now a disgruntled employee or some bad actor from a nation state or, you know, lapses or whatever you want to be, right? The reality is, is if you can detect and spot that stuff, and, and that for me was one of the things about security intelligence. If you can detect and spot that stuff, your only mission is to protect your data. And I, I also say this, like, look, these executives that we're speaking to right now, they don't give a flying shit about any of this. They just don't want to be in the press. So if you can go to any co-founder of any company or any executive, any board, and say, do you want to spend a dollar on security? Their question for that dollar is, will it keep me out of the news, right? If you could keep them out of the news without spending any money on security, that is the option they would take. So the reality for us as practitioners is, We've got to try and keep the company out of the news, keep our compliance good, because a lot of people care about that side of the business. But we got to do it in a way that is really cost effective. So for me, I look at proactive security and reactive security as different expense line items. And I'd rather put more dollars in proactive security that get you out of the face of the workers because the other thing is, is we need productive workforce. We don't need a workforce that's hampered by, you know, bureaucracy and bullshit from a security team. As we're applying our trade, it's just really important to think about how do we enable the business, but in a secure way, and then really what's practical from a technology perspective. And, and I love this concept of security intelligence as a proactive force for good, rather than 
my IR team as a reactive response based on bad things happening. No, I think that's fantastic. And and what I want to ask you now is, and you, you highlighted it, but if you were going to list out the two, three, four, five, whatever, six tenants of proactive security intelligence, without thinking of any vendors first, but what are the capabilities when you're thinking about proactive security or security intelligence, and you were going to write criteria for that? You know, think if we're developing RFP questions to either say we're either going to build or buy, but it should contain, rather than putting all our money on in response and IR necessarily, we're going to build a proactive security function capability. You know, one of your core questions was, was that you that logged in, which I love, but what would be the pillars of what you would be sure to include that would later be decomposed into sort of measurable questions within an RFP, let's say, or maybe a solutions document or a charter or whatever we want to say? I think the front line of the defense is all around the, the user identity and the machine identity to begin with, right? So first of all, you know, make sure that you have a really robust identity platform. So the ability for onboarding and offboarding workers has got to be solid, right? So from your HR system, your identity management, your directory services, like all of that needs to be in place. And a capability for logging, all of that information needs to be solid, right? I want to be able to know and demonstrate and understand when an account was created, why it was created, and when it was deactivated, and if the account was stale. A good, great example is, you know, a lot of companies, when they look at vendor accounts, and vendors or maybe there's a purchase order and you bring a vendor in. Maybe they tie those things together, but quite often they probably don't. And then the vendor account is created. And then then when the vendor is dormant and not active because they've gone, it's different from an HR process with an employee. An HR process is someone resigned, your HR system knows their last day of work or their last day of employment, and that can trigger a, a job to go disable the account. But for vendors, you usually don't have that. Or genetic accounts, you don't have that. So for me, that log information is vitally important because the next thing I want to do is I want to look at that security intelligence capability and say, hey, if you've not logged in in 90 days, I'm going to trigger this workflow to go and disable your account, then go notify the manager the account's been disabled. I want to move away from these workflows that say, I'm going to ask the manager because I think that's all wasted time. The reality is not logged in nine days, cool. I'm going to whack the account. And then at that point, if the manager wants it re-enabled, there's a workflow to re-enable it. And for me, that identity piece is vitally important. I got really excited when it came to devices on your network and device identities. One of the things in the Zero Trust deployments that we done at Adobe and Cisco is saying, look, when I'm logging in, I'm going to do a device posture check at the same time. And as part of that posture check, I'm going to know what that device is. Well, at that point, you know, think, think of it like this. You don't actually buy an endpoint like a laptop, a workstation, a phone. You don't get those things unless you need to log into an application or service. Right. I mean, a laptop that never logs into an app or service is a useless piece of hardware, right? You're not doing anything. So the reality is, is 
I know with great confidence, as an example, inside Banyan, like I know all of the active laptops that we have are active because they're logging into an app or service to do their job. And at that point, I therefore know all of the device identities. So that whole know what's on your network piece, I know what's on my network. You know, I can look at network logs, I can look at network authentication, but I can also look at our console and and see that stuff. So I look at identities, user, device. I look at the security intelligence behind the users and the devices. And I use that information to make decisions. Ideally, I've also, and I do have at Banyan, I've got controls to say if you don't meet a minimum requirement, you're not logging in. So when it comes to things like vulnerability management and patch management and all that nonsense, I can proactively do that today by denying access. And, you know, so, you know, at Cisco, we didn't use Banyan's technology at Adobe, we did. And in both cases, and regardless of the tech stack you're using, that ability to deny access to something because you don't meet a minimum security requirement is a brilliant step forward for any company. So every security program I've ever done, I look at the robustness of the identities and then I get into things like data security and stuff like that. Because at the end of the day, you know, we are looking at identities, we're looking at privileged identities, we're looking at roles, we're looking at the devices. And then you get to the, and and compliance goes along all the time as part of all of that stuff. Not that compliance equals security, but compliance usually equals something to someone. And at the end of the day, that reactive stuff, if you think of a security strategy, you know, we used to say this in Adobe, which is keep the bad guys out, know quickly when they're in and get them out quickly. (laughs) Right. I mean, you're, you're really kind of you, you exist, especially when you're in a company like Adobe or Cisco that's always under attack. Right. I mean, these are their brand names and stuff. So they, they get attention from bad people. So you have to have a robust program and you have to think of it as being how do I make sure bad people don't get in to begin with? There's a lot of investment there, but then you do have to counter that for the in the event they do get in. How quickly can you know they're in and how quickly can you get them out? You mentioned behavior earlier related to credential. And I think that you also mentioned that people typically don't look at things until some crisis occurs. Any other tips that you have on, you know, for example, I'm always keen on service account behavior, right? Those should be pretty well locked in. There's things you should never see there. You mentioned looking at first and second factor. So people say, oh, well, don't worry, we've got 2FA. But it's amazing how many times situations happen around a token in some sort of provision mode or new pin mode or not even set to use that factor or some other type of circumventation or, you know, some other acquisition of the token code or whatever. Any other tips that you would have people begin to consider as part of that requirement, again, back into security intelligence, almost finishing the sentence of, I want to make sure I can do whatever. What are some other things you'd recommend? We were going down this path in Adobe and actually my team at Cisco just prior to me leaving, which is, first of all, most service accounts are unable to do second factor because they're service accounts, right? They're not sitting there waiting on that verified notification on their cell phone. So the reality is, is you have to think of the strategy on how you protect those service accounts and why do they exist to begin with? And the cool thing for me on the security intelligence front was 
Well, first of all, these service accounts, they exist to do one function. Ideally, you don't you don't want to build service accounts and have that service account do like a thousand things, right? I want to know that that one service account logs in so that it's accessing data from a database to do a certain function and it's very predictable. And I think that's the one thing about service accounts is they should be very predictable. And the security intelligence team were then applying logic based on what those accounts were doing. And if we saw any deviation from that, so if you suddenly see a service account trying to log into five other devices that they've never logged into before, you should be throwing up some like arm wavy alarm, you know? The other thing is, is, you know, service accounts, and that's where we're getting the privileged identity. You should have a robust privileged identity story, right? Your strategy around that, there should be like a password vault, there should be bastion hosts, there should be great logging. And ideally, you don't have privileges to things you don't need access to, you know? So make sure that that access is really, really tight for privileged accounts. But again, the most important thing for me was just, hey, they shouldn't deviate from their task. And if they do, start waving the alarm bells. Especially with a service account, you shouldn't see it surfing the web. You shouldn't see it signing in interactively. You shouldn't see a service account involved in any other sort of related alerts or activities. Again, interactive login, surfing the web, signing into servers that it's never signed in before. All of that takes context in a sea of successes and failures and login events and all the rest. And so putting that in the hands of a team is sometimes challenging, but I would absolutely 100% of the time want to know if any of those examples happen, you know, downloading a PE file. If a service account downloads a PE file, I want to know all of that. I even just want controls in place so that they can't do that to begin with, right? I used to look at people that would argue about their data center having internet access so they could do patching. And it's like, no, 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 let's let's cut that bullshit. Let's take a different strategy where there is, you know, a set way that we get the patches we need, and then there's a set way we deploy patches. And you know, things like Kubernetes and you know, better ways of doing things now exist. So you shouldn't even need that at all. One of the things, Steve, that was really important to us in the security intelligence journey is that signal to noise ratio, because you can send all this noise to your IR team or to your SOC, right? So it was was really, really important for us to make sure that what we were deploying had a really low threshold of noise. And we would say, you know, we started off with like, here's a million events. And of the million events you get down to, and here's the two things you need to worry about. And, and, and that is a really important step to get to along that journey. It's massive. It's massive to kind of cut that down and to be able to call your shot and tell leadership that, look, this is, this is the kind of thing we focus on. And this is why. Yeah, this is how real this becomes. We even had an executive in one of the companies hit their second factor even though they didn't log in with the first factor. And, you know, this speaks to the kind of the user behavior piece of life, right? Which is sometimes you'll see that notification come through and you'll think it's tied to something else and you just hit, okay, we had actually already raised the alarm and were contacting the user as that user was hitting the second factor. Or like, hey, we think someone's logging into your account from Egypt or whatever it was. And at the same time, the guy was like, yeah, I've just hit second factor. (laughs) So we're like, cut the sessions and jumping all in there, right? The thing about this intelligence game is 
you can get to a position where you can prevent bad actors from doing bad things. And, and, you know, that's really, you know, for me, it was two things. One is let's prevent bad actors, but then let's also get security out of the face of employees. The more things we can put as a background task or function because we've got better confidence, the better, right? I love it as a goal. I love it as a mindset. I think not enough people are doing it. I think that there's even room to develop, you know, maybe some of your own version of like tenants that you should see, you know, proactive security or security intelligence means knowing these kinds of things, or you should always see these, ensuring that you always see this and ensuring that you never see that, you know, using the examples we gave today. No, I think this is, there's a lot of value in this discussion and, and in this mindset. I appreciate you walking through it with us. Dan, the, the musician, the postman, the security leader, thanks so much for being here today. I got one final question for you. Pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO, what does being a new security leader, a new CSO mean to you? Well, I think the biggest thing is, you know, relationships and your network. You want to be as a leader leveraging and, and building and building these relationships and stuff. And I think when you're a new security leader, I reach out to people in my network that I've learned, you know, got to know over the years and built good relationships with and leverage their wisdom, their expertise and the guidance as I become, you know, CSO at Banyan. It's a different shift for me from being, you know, on the customer side to now being on the vendor side. So it's just really important, you know, you build, build your network in advance of needing your network so that when you do become that new CISO for the first time, then you have a bunch of trusted people you can leverage and call upon when you need to. Excellent advice. Dan, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks, Steve. Thank you very much for having us. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.